Matthew chapter 21. Jesus has been espoused as a uh, sort of poster boy for many causes. Um, Politicians love to adopt him at their convenience, of course. Uh, Many social and societal movements do the same. Um, Some individuals say, well, Jesus is my example. Jesus is a good teacher. Jesus is maybe a model for life. Some others might call Jesus their higher power. Um, And many filter Jesus through their specific cause and need, kind of imagining him in ways that work best for their particular agenda. And it was no different on an early spring day in uh, a Roman-occupied Israel over 2,000 years ago. Tens of thousands of people were headed toward Jerusalem as pilgrims. This is one of the great feasts that the Jews celebrated. Um, And during the Passover, the the city of Jerusalem would sell uh, a swell to the point that they estimate its population was doubled. Um, The feast of Passover commemorated God's rescuing of his people. And that rescuing specifically was that story so many centuries before in their history as he rescued them out of Egypt, the great exodus out of Egypt, the slavery and bondage they were in for 400 plus years. Um, This exodus happened specifically after many plagues and the final plague was the plague of the death of the firstborn, and all of Egypt was affected except for the Hebrews because God had instructed the Hebrew people to take a flawless lamb into their home, to sacrifice that lamb, to consume that lamb, and then to put the blood of the lamb over their doorposts. So they they were exempt when they did that, and there was the, the angel of death passed over their houses, and there were no, no deaths to be found in their houses, unlike the rest of Egypt. And now, as, as we come into this text this morning, Passover is here, and thousands of lambs are going to be soon coming into Jerusalem to be sacrificed. But what they don't see fully is that the foreshadowing of what was foreshadowed of that, that the greater deliverance was right at their doorstep. What we celebrate today, um, what some call Palm Sunday, is an event that's often labeled as Jesus is, as, as Maggie already pointed out, triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem was, as, as author Michael Wilkins writes, the center of Israel's spiritual life and messianic hope. Um, anticipation for who Jesus was and what he would do was at an all-time high as we come into this event. Uh, Jesus had just, as we see according to the Gospel of John, raised Lazarus from the dead. It's very likely, if you can imagine, that this man that had died and had been dead for four days was now walking with them in this processional 
into Jerusalem. So the stage is set for uh, this moment um, for Jesus to be received into the city, a city that Psalm 48 calls the city of our God, the city of the great king. It's set for him to be received as Messiah King. This long-awaited and prophesied anointed one, the one that the prophets had spoke of. Um, this would indeed prove to be a triumphal entry, but not nearly as the people expected it. Um, their excitement was short-lived. Their, their, the crowds would prove fickle. The religious leaders, we're told in the Gospels, are already looking for a way to kill Jesus as he enters into the city. Um, Jesus knows this full well. He says in Mark chapter 10, and I'll just read this, he says, he says to his disciples as they're moving up toward Jerusalem, he says, we are going to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. So Jesus knew exactly what he was stepping into, that he was going to lay down his life. Um, in just a few days, Jesus will accomplish his goal as Messiah King. Um, he will face his arrest. He will face the mockery of a trial. He will face uh, brutal treatment and torture. He will face ultimately the torture of the crucifixion and death, where a sign, it will be fixed over his mangled body, mockingly saying, the king of the Jews. Yet this will be how Jesus triumphs. For Jesus becomes there the final sacrifice, the final lamb to be sacrificed for sin, paying the penalty for sin and securing redemption for all who will believe. And because he was that final sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice, obedient to the Father all the way to the cross, he has victory over death, ultimately three days later. Let's read Matthew uh, chapter 21, the first five verses. It says, As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and once you, and once, I'm sorry, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what, the, what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So it's interesting, Jesus had fulfilled hundreds of prophecies in his lifetime, hundreds of things that were written about him to the letter centuries before he was even born. 
And most of those prophecies were fulfilled in what we might call the natural course of events. In other words, they weren't anything that he could have choreographed to happen. Uh, For example, when he's on the cross, um, Jesus had no human control over the fact that the soldiers would gamble for his clothing. And this is just one of literally hundreds of examples. But in Psalm twenty-two, eighteen, it says that they divided his garments among them and cast lots for his clothing. And that, again, was written hundreds of years before he was even born, and it happened exactly that way. But he didn't choreograph any of that. Um, but this occasion is, is a somewhat interesting, what I'd call a partial exception. And I say partial because what Jesus couldn't have choreographed was the people's response to him that we'll look at in a minute. Yet Jesus, who up to this point had continually dissuaded any sort of kind of public furor or demonstration around their messianic hope in him, now sets up this scene. We could say that here at the triumphal entry, he purposefully purposefully tips his hand to his identity. He makes a clear visual statement. This is the only place in the Gospels, the only place that we're told that Jesus travels any other way than what? Walking on foot. He walked everywhere. That's all the Gospels. It's the only way the Gospels speak of him traveling, walking. But, well, yeah, I guess you could say by boat. Yeah, okay, by boat. Um, On land, I guess. Okay, so you got me there. So, um, so, but here is the one instance that he purposely, purposefully rides a donkey. Um, He he secures a donkey's foal. Matthew is the only one that tells us that that mama donkey came along with, probably because, again, this unbroken donkey, it would have kept that, that animal calm. Uh, during this time. And he rides into Jerusalem at a moment that the city would have been overwhelmed with people and that there would have been very, very high expectation, like I said, concerning who Jesus is. They they would be wondering, is he the one? And, And the image would have been unmistakable for a Jew. They knew the prophecies. They knew what the prophets foretold. And, and, Reading, uh, this is a prophecy that, um, <clears throat> that Matthew speaks of here in, in the, his gospel out of Zechariah. He says, rejoice greatly. This is written by Zechariah. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim, and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. The Jews know their scriptures. They know their prophecies. And Jesus is purposefully orchestrating the scene. Get me a donkey, rides on a donkey into Jerusalem, They are awaiting. Is he the one? He's tipping the hand to his identity. There might be a few of you here this morning that still wonder who Jesus is, doubt who Jesus is. Um, But what I can tell you assuredly is that is who Jesus was saying that he was. 
he was making it in no uncertain terms clear, I am the one the prophets are speaking of. I am Messiah, the anointed one of God, sent by God, come to be king over my people. This is who Jesus is proclaiming to be. So then the question has to be, do I accept that? Do I receive the fact that this is who Jesus is claiming to be? Because he can't just be a teacher. He can't just be our poster boy. He can't just be our, 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 the man for our cause, whether it be corporate or personal. We have to say, is he who he is on his terms? Messiah King. Um, allow me just quickly before we move on to uh, just give a couple of quick side notes concerning, concerning these donkeys. And again, a little bit of this, we get a fuller picture as we, we uh, look at the other Gospels. This is one of the few events that's told in all four Gospels. Um, but I think it's really interesting what happens as these donkeys are secured. And there's some details we don't have. We don't know exactly did the folks he got the donkeys from, did they know Jesus? Had Jesus talked to them? Was this just a completely miraculous situation? Um, but what's really neat to see, first off, is that God always goes ahead of us in preparation. God always goes ahead of us in preparation. Um, the, the disciples are sent out to something that, that is already prepared, whether it had been physical or supernatural. Um, and, and I think it's just comforting to know that we never into, enter into a situation where God is saying, oh, no, well, what are we going to do now? God never does that. You never enter into a situation where God is wringing his hands, wondering what to do now. You always enter into situations that God has gone before. He's timeless. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. He may lead you into unexpected places. You, some of you this morning may be being led into some unexpected places. But it's not unexpected to God. He has already gone before you. He already knows the situation. In fact, he's already prepared the situation to be a situation that you can grow in, that you can learn in, that you can, that you can have opportunity in to love, to trust, to shine his light. God's never surprised. He's always prepared. Uh, but that doesn't mean the situations will always be comfortable, right? <laughs> I, I think of if I were one of these guys being told to secure these donkeys. Um, I love One Life. The One Life students are on, on spring break. They're not with us this morning. But in One Life, one of the things that they tell them right off the bat is that they have to learn to be comfortable in the uncomfortable. They have to learn to be comfortable in the uncomfortable. And I think God is often calling us to be comfortable in the uncomfortable. I'd say that as Americans, one of our, one of our biggest idols is trying to always make ourselves comfortable. <laughs> it, it, as long as everything feels secure all the time and painless all the time, we're good. But God's like, no, there's, there's a lot to be learned in the uncomfortable. In fact, that's where your faith grows. So can you, can you imagine, if, 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 imagine for a moment if Jesus said, hey, listen, 
what I need you to do, I, the two of you, go down, go down to Williamsport. There's a car down there, a really nice car. And it already has its keys in it. You're going to find it on such and such a street. Just take it. Just take it. And, and what I want you to do is bring it to me. And if the owner comes out and says, why are you taking my car? Just tell him the Lord needs it. <laughs> Comfortable? <laughs> I mean, that would have been kind of, if these folks didn't know ahead of time, that would, that would kind of be the scenario. The Lord needs it. Um, I'm not encouraging anyone to go steal a car this morning. <laughs> Lord, are you telling me this one? This one? It's got its keys in it. Uh, but don't be surprised when God does call you into uncomfortable places. Again, some of you this morning may already be being, being called into some uncomfortable places. Maybe even being here this morning is a little uncomfortable for you. That's where faith grows. And, and, and so the Lord may say, hey, go... Go talk to so-and-so. You might feel led to do that. And you say, wait, you want me to talk to who? You want me to serve where? I said I would never go there. You want me to do what? I said I would never do that thing. But that is where faith grows. And then think of the lessons of the guys who gave up the donkeys. Those would have been valuable possessions. I, I just thought, am I willing to surrender to God at a moment's notice? My time, my stuff, my agenda. When the Lord says, hey, I, hey, I need that now. Well, Lord, I had plans for that thing, or I had plans for my time, and I, I was going to do this, I was going to do that. It says, am I holding loosely enough so when the Spirit of God says, the Lord needs it, the Lord needs it. He's entrusted it to you, and now the Lord needs it. Will I hold loosely enough to give it? Just a few, a few thoughts there. Verses 6 through 11. Uh, the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds went ahead of him, and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. This is Jesus. This is, this is God saves. The prophet from where? From Nazareth. <laughs> that would have been, that would have seemed like quite a, the prophet from that little hick town? Does anything good come out of there? Let's take a minute to think about the, the response of the people. Um, in essence, we have a spontaneous worship service that breaks out on the road to Jerusalem, uh, with the Son of God being the rightful recipient of their salvation celebration. But what were they saying, and why were they saying it? Uh, the messages that they shout were typical for the Passover. 
uh, they come out of this section of the Psalms that they called the Hallel. How do you say that? Hallel. Do you guys say that like you have phlegm in your throat? You're, you're studying Hebrew. How would you say? Huh? You're not going to do it. Hallel. So, um, so it's out of Psalms 113 to 118. And it would have been a very typical thing that they would have been reciting during this festival, during this feast. And it simply meant praise. Now, a little section of that out of Psalm 118 says, O Lord, save us. O Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine upon us. With bows in hand, join the the festival procession up to the horns of the altar. And in a sense, now this passage, this whole celebration comes to life right before them. As they celebrate Jesus as if he's a king, as if it's his coronation, or he's this victorious and triumphant military leader. Their words and their actions are actually quite clear. Um, First off, they are calling for an act of God himself, for God to act. Uh, This word, Hosanna, simply meant save or save us now. Save us now in the highest. God, we need you to act. We need you to be the one that rescues us. Hosanna, save us now. We need heavenly help. Um, But they knew that God's salvation would be accomplished through this prophesied Messiah, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. He would be in the line of the great King David. His, his, His kingdom would be established and it would last forever. So they shout, blessed is he, or blessed is the king that comes in the name of the Lord. Other gospels say that they shouted, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Blessed is the king of Israel. Now remember, this is Roman occupied territory. And as Jesus is coming in, they're saying, God, save us now. Save us through this vessel, is what they're saying. He is the guy. He is the king. Here's Messiah. Imagine how, the, how that hit the Roman officials' ears. They take palm branches, would have been this, which would have been this nationalistic symbol signifying liberty and victory and laid them before Jesus. Jesus is now our liberator. They take cloaks and lay them on the road as they would a king coming into the city, a sign of respect and submission. I would thought, how, what, what cloaks do we have to lie, lay on the road? All of this was such a clear display of who Jesus was saying he was and who the people were acknowledging that he was that Luke tells us that the religious leaders shout out to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They're like, whoa, this is getting out of hand. This is like a spontaneous worship service. They're they're setting this guy up like he's the king of Israel, like he's the prophesied Messiah. Hey, teacher, rabbi, rebuke your disciples. And what does Jesus say? Does anybody know? Yeah, if they keep quiet, even the stones will cry out. 
I wonder, how does our worship compare to that spontaneous worship service that day? Do we ever dare not give Jesus the worship he deserves? It may be on a Sunday morning, but worship is a whole life activity, right? Bowing down before the Lord, adoring the Lord. Maybe, well, I don't really feel like worshiping today. I'm not really feeling, not really feeling it. Is it really about what we feel? Or is it about what God deserves, what Jesus deserves? Every time we worship, every time we surrender, every time we bow down, every time we adore, every time we praise, we appropriately keep the rocks silent another day. But I think we have to go further than Jesus' deliberate visual statement or even how the people responded that day, the people's applause. We must go to the message that was not understood and accepted that day. Um, John Phillips writes, almost forgotten are the proud pageants of emperors. I thought that was interesting. Almost forgotten are all these, you know, all these emperors coming into the cities on their chariots. That distant history. But remember to this day is the procession of the meek king who sat on a donkey and used old clothes for a saddle and palm fronds for a carpet. Combining meekness and majesty, the Lord came into the city. His triumphal entry was the last appeal to Jerusalem to recognize its king. But I think we need to ask, what kind of king? What kind of king is this? Because he didn't turn out to be the king they wanted. Right? This crowd turned on Jesus just a few days later. What kind of king? The, the problem here wasn't that the people's vision for Jesus was too big. It's that it was too small. And I think this is so often still our problem. It's not that your vision for Jesus is too big. Your vision for Jesus is too small. <laughs> These people were looking for a savior, but they were looking for a savior against Rome. So Jesus frames his entry with purposeful symbolism. He, they, they wanted a military leader. They wanted a political leader. Come overthrow Rome. Be our military leader. Be our politician. But Jesus didn't come on a chariot. Jesus didn't come on a war horse. He came on a donkey, which would have been the symbolism of a king coming in, pronouncing peace. Bruce Milne writes, Jesus deliberately demilitarizes their vision and declares the nature of his messianic rule, a rule of peace and gentleness. He demilitarizes their vision and declares the nature of his messianic rule, a rule of peace and gentleness. I say, how do we still so often get this wrong? But the reality is that the crowds, the crowds will never define Jesus. 
They wanted a political leader, and that's what Jesus refused to be. And that's what Jesus continues to refuse to be. In our setting, Jesus will not be commandeered by the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. Uh, he won't be commandeered by special interest groups who, wanna, who want to filter Jesus through their politics. The reality is, is that our politics are to be filtered through his kingship. That's important. You do not filter Jesus through your politics. You filter your politics through Jesus' kingship. Jesus will not be the poster boy of an earthly agenda. He will not even be of the poster boy for our personal agendas, just giving us what we want. He is the righteous king ready to give us what we need. Our agendas for Jesus are always too small. He didn't come that day to save, to save historical Israel from Rome. He came to save all who would believe from of all times and all places, including you and I, 2,000 years, years later, from sin and from death. He has no need for an earthly throne. He is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Our vision for Jesus is too small. His plan is not to do our bidding, but it's to rule over our hearts and to rule over our lives. And maybe we've got to think this morning a little bit where we tend to get that wrong. Where we tend to be like the crowds. And Jesus didn't come to Jerusalem that day to bring war. That might have been what some of the people wanted. But he came that day to bring peace. As the Prince of Peace. Now, of course, there's a great paradox here. Because Jesus will fight the greatest battle of all time. And he will come out as the greatest victor of all time. But he'll do that as he submits to a Roman cross like a lamb led to the slaughter. Jesus came lowly and humble to save the lowly and humble. Jesus came as a peacemaker and calls his followers, his disciples still today, to be ministers of reconciliation. I wonder if some of us need to align our hearts with Jesus even this morning. That we'd be more ready to lay our lives down than to take up arms and take other lives away. Maybe some Christians need to get off their war horses and go find a donkey. Start representing the Prince of Peace. Matthew tells us to close. Matthew tells us that the whole city was stirred. And what's really interesting, that word stirred means moved, shaken. It's where we get our word seismic for earthquakes. The whole city was stirred. And the question that was being asked was, who is this? 
And I believe that Jesus is still moving and shaking people. I believe there's still seismic spiritual activity going on. And I believe people still today are saying, who is this? Who is this? And maybe for those of us who call Christ our Lord and our Savior, we got to say our, our lives, our, our words, our, our social media posts, how are they answering that question? And if you're asking that question this morning, um, I would still echo Zechariah's words to you. See, your king comes to you. Jesus would say, hi, I'm God saves. Righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey. And the question is, will you receive him? Again, not as the poster boy of your agenda, but as the rightful king of your heart. For one day he will return. There will be a final triumphal entry as he comes to judge the living and the dead. Let's pray.